Hello folks and good evening for a, a new SACPA evening session. Um, SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the land of Blackfoot people and the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3 and we pay respects to their past, present and future cultural heritage, beliefs and relationships to the land. SACPA commits to assist reconciliation efforts by raising awareness of the ways past and present injustices can be reconciled. Today we're very happy to welcome with us from all the way from Australia, Dr. Moira Williams. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, for over a decade, Moira has been a leader in the Australian grassroots climate movement from building and supporting a national network of climate action groups to working with landholders, traditional owners, and coal-affected communities in central Queensland. For the last eight years, she has worked on a campaign to keep coal in the Galilee Basin, one of the largest untapped fossil fuel reserves on the planet, safely in the ground. She currently works with Tipping Point, a collective that works behind the scenes to support the national stop. Ah, Ada, Adani, Adani movement, one of the largest and most successful environmental movements in the Australian history. Sorry, I just couldn't do the Australian accent. So um, thanks for joining us, Moira, and we look forward to your talk. Oh, thanks so much, Annalise and Mark. Uh, you did pretty well. Stop Adani um, is the Australian way to say it. But uh, thank you so much for you both and Sakla for having me here um, and for that great intro. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, and I want to kick off with that, that second slide there, Annalise, um, to really acknowledge that I here am um, working and living on stolen Aboriginal land um, to acknowledge the First Nations people of this country. I'm here on Yagar and Turrbal country and also acknowledge that coal mining has really been a threat to Aboriginal land since the very beginning of uh, when we were colonised here and that invasion and occupation was driven in by part, a large part by the quest for coal and other resources. Um, I think there's a lot of... Uh, parallels between Canada and here but you know Aboriginal people have been fighting for land rights for a long time and often come against uh, laws that are stacked against them when it comes to mining projects um, and their right to say no uh, to mining projects on their land in fact here in Australia of 99% of applications that mining companies put forward to destroy cultural heritage are approved and so right now we're seeing mining companies destroy sacred Aboriginal cultural sites across the country. Um, so I wanted to acknowledge, yeah, First Nations people here and in Canada continuing to resist colonisation and extraction. Um, and with that, I guess, you know, we have a big fight ahead of us. So if we flick to that next slide, this is a headline from um, a Bloomberg article just last month. It's some really sobering news that, you know, the world burnt the largest amount ever of coal to produce electricity last year. Um, so, you know, you hear this thing that coal's over, it's dead. Um, the reality is it's not over. It hasn't peaked. And, you know, as people here that care about the world around us, we have lots of work to do to speed up the end to the polluting coal industry. Here in Australia, we're exporting record volumes of coal and have plans to continue to export 
coal to the world, effectively exporting climate climate chaos to the world. And one of the reasons for that boom is if we jump to the next slide, that's some um, charts around how the coal price has boomed in the last few months. So, um, you know, they are at historical highs and, and that's really driving the continuation of, you know, the viability of coal mines we thought may have become unviable by now. Um, so that's some context. If we go to the next slide here in Australia, um, you know, this is a photo from the bushfire crisis a couple of years ago. You might have seen people being evacuated from beaches. Um, and right now, I haven't caught up and put a, a slide, a photo here, but we are experiencing unprecedented flooding across the East Coast, including where I am here in Brisbane. We're seeing um, just down the road one of the most, the largest floods that's causing mass evacuations and flooded homes and, and deaths right across the East Coast of Australia. So we are feeling the impacts of the climate crisis um, and we are also one of the biggest contributors to that climate crisis. We are the world's biggest coal exporter, um, the pollution from our coal exports, in fact, dwarf the amount of carbon pollution from our, our domestic emissions, you know, whether that's transport, domestic production of pollution. Um, so, yeah, it's a huge problem. Um, and not only that, we have, you know, close to 100 operating coal mines. We also have 60 proposed new coal mines and expansions across the country. And that's what I mean. Coal is not dead. It is they're still very much on the books and live projects. Keen to hear, you know, what how that compares with the situation in Canada. Um, but if we go to the next slide, you know, that really shows that um, here in Australia we have more than our fair share of new proposed coal mines. So almost half of the new proposed coal mines um, are situated here in Australia, and that's pretty sobering. As a coal and climate activist in Australia, it's a huge amount of work to do, but I think it also shows how much, if we have a strong coal movement here in Australia, how much a contribution we can make to solving global climate change. In terms of, you know, we, we know um, the, the climate crisis to... to to address it and to keep um, global warming to 1.5 degrees. And we saw the IPCC report released this week. Um, just on the next slide, we know that we actually have to keep 95% of known Australian coal reserves in the ground if we're going to get anywhere near meeting those climate targets. So we've got a big responsibility and deeply committed to kind of working as hard as we can to, to make that happen. The next slide starts to talk about, you know, well, what, are the impacts we're seeing of coal here in Australia. And just like everywhere around the world, coal is really harming communities. Um, the air pollution from Australian coal mining, we know contributes to the death of about, the premature death of about 3,000 Australians. Um, we Here we have the highest rate of mammal extinction in the world. So we're seeing mining companies clear huge areas of land for mining, destroying habitat. And, of course, the climate impacts that I talked about. Another one which I think, you know, particularly here in Australia and one of the driest inhabited continents on Earth um, is water. And it's pretty staggering the amount of water the coal mining industry uses here. It's the equivalent of about 5 million people's domestic consumption every year. Um, and this photo on the left says it all. It's a picture of a coal train in the height of the 2019 drought, you know, when the rest of the community was on water restrictions and towns were drying up, uh, there was two enormous trains full of 
water was sent every single day just to keep one small coal mine from running. So it's a huge user of a, of a very precious natural resource. If we go to the next slide, you get to see a picture of our current Prime Minister, um, Scott Morrison. He's head of the coalition or the Conservative government, literally holding a piece of coal in Parliament, telling Australians not to be afraid um, of coal. And unfortunately here in Australia it's become a very divisive ideological debate between coal and renewable energy um, and mining companies wield a huge amount of political influence as do mining lobby groups. You know, they spend tens of millions of dollars on advertising and lobbying. There's a revolving door between coal mining companies and governments. So literally, you know, it seems like if you leave government, the first job you have is in the biggest coal or gas company down the road. Um, and we also see huge donations. Um, in a couple of years ago, there was donations of almost $2 million to the major parties from fossil fuel companies. Um, so despite, you know, high levels of public support for action on climate change here, the Murdoch-owned media also continues to provide space for climate denialism and, and don't argue that, you know, argue that there is no link between, say, climate change and the bushfires or the, the, the floods that we're dishing out so um yeah that's the the context it's really a, a picture of state capture where our politics have been so captured by a powerful mining industry that it's been pretty hard for many years to kind of um get meaningful action on climate change and and both major parties have been big blockers to action on climate change and movement out of the fossil fuel industry if we go to the next slide, I guess I was keen to provide some, you know, that's kind of the broader context of coal here in Australia. I wanted to dig into one of the biggest coal campaigns here, which has been really become a symbol for the fight against coal, um, is the community campaign to keep the Galilee Basin in the, the ground. And that's the fight I've been sort of dedicated to for the last eight years. Um, the next slide shows a... Uh, the deposits, coal deposits in Australia. So this is the east coast of Australia. I'm located here in Brisbane. That's like in the middle of the east coast there in Queensland. Um, and the Galley Basin, which is just sort of in, inland a little bit, about 300 kilometres from the coast, it's still the second largest proposed expansion of coal mining in the world, so after what is planned for Western China. Um, you know, if these mines, there was multiple companies vying to build mines in this basin, and if they all reached their full production, it could account for almost 6% of global climate pollution. Um, and 10 years ago, we got wind of plans to massively expand all of those coal ports. So they're on the map there as well at Abbott Point, Hay Point, Gladstone expand those coal ports along the Queensland coastline and open up the Galley Basin, which currently has no mines. Um, and is situated 300 kilometres inland from the coast. The next slide actually shows, you know, what if we map um, one of our precious natural icons, the Great Barrier Reef, keen to hear in the chat if you've been to the reef, what you thought of it. It's a, it's a beautiful place. Um, it's one of the largest, well, it is the largest reef system in the world, but it's also huge, right, that um, if you think about the country of Italy and how big that is, lying just off the coast of Australia, that would probably align with that blue line there um, just to get an idea of its vastness. And unfortunately, you know, those big coal expansions were planned to, you know, massively increase shipping of coal 
Um, so coal is moved by rail from those inland coal basins out through those ports um, and across the Great Barrier Reef. So huge concerns about the impacts to the reef, not just from climate change through bleaching of coral, but massive increases in ship movements. Um, had another slide there showing the beautiful diversity of fish uh, um, in this incredible ecosystem. And the next slide I just wanted to show you for a bit of fun because that's from 2013, nine years ago. That's me in the pink swimsuit and some flippers um, when we first heard about these massive plans to industrialise the reef coastline. Uh, and we got into our flippers, got into the major centre of Sydney, a big city here in Australia, and snorkelled in the Hyde Park fountain saying that, you know, if we lost the Great Barrier Reef to coal, um, then we'd have to holiday here in the fountain. So we've got a bit of early media um, but that kicked off what soon became a major national issue it was called the fight for the reef campaign to protect the great barrier reef from coal expansion um, you know and it was not surprising just how big an issue it became when you looked at you start to look at some of the impacts it has so on the next slide you know just kind of talking to those briefly um, one of the biggest impacts is that this, these mines were proposed to be built on stolen Aboriginal land, the land of the Wangan and Jagalingu people, and I'll talk more about their struggle for um, for justice shortly. Already talked about the climate impacts, but, you know, the, the Galilee Basin holds over 4.6 billion tonnes of carbon pollution. Um, impacts on the reef, of course, water. Uh, one of the staggering things here in Australia is that Queensland government, my state government, issued... Um, the coal companies here in the Galilee Basin, a, a groundwater licence that allows them to access 60 years of unlimited water for free. Um, and that incensed a lot of people here and I think speaks to the real power of the mining industry in Australia, that they can get away with those kind of concessions. Um, so we had this situation where, you know, the Great Barrier Reef, our big precious natural icon, was at risk. We had the government at all levels supporting a massive expansion of Australia's coal exports. They wanted to see overall a tripling of our exports. Um, and in response to all these concerns, a massive community campaign was formed. So it was made up of tourism operators concerned about the Great Barrier Reef, businesses, communities where the coal ports were proposed, like up in Mackay. Um, and of course, people in cities like myself that were concerned about the impacts of climate change. Um, the next slide just shows um, the launch of the, the Stop Adani movement. Um, so in the Galilee Basin, there were several key players wanting to open up coal mines. I think some of them are even players in Canada, people like Gina Reinhart and now Clive Palmer and other billionaires. And, of course, mining giant um, Guatam Adani, who owns the Adani mine. Um, so... After a little while, it became clear that Adani was really the only player pursuing this most ridiculous plan uh, with any real seriousness. All the other Australian companies largely walked away because it was deemed too expensive, unviable to access this remote coal deposit, you know, build the railway line, which was going to cost um, billions of dollars, and it was 300 kilometres from the coast. And so for the last five years, our campaign, it's called hashtag Stop Adani Campaign, see the sign in the bottom left there, has really focused on the Adani company and the Adani Carmichael coal mine that they wanted to build. 
Um, and it was a mega coal mine. So when we say mine, we should say mega because it was six underground coal mines, six open cut pits, not just a small mine. And it's become one of the most controversial projects in the world. And I think certainly Stoppadani, the name has become synonymous with sort of the anti-coal movement in Australia. Um, that next slide just shows a bit of the launch of the how we launched that movement. So we said, well, we've got this big problem. Um, Adani are really pushing ahead. We need to build a national movement to really fight back. And we kicked off in 2017 with a national roadshow, so big town hall community events, ones like this one that was held in Melbourne, um, with, and with the explicit ask for people to join or host a local group in their community. And off the back of that, we had over 100 local community action groups called Stop Adani Groups take off. Um, and yeah, since then it's become one of the biggest movements in our history. So huge amount of grassroots actions over the last five years, from film screenings to actions at um, companies' offices that were funding Adani, door knocking, um, big human signs like you saw in the last photo, big rallies that effectively made Adani a household name and stop Adani, that big symbolic um, thing. And we we took as a win the fact that Adani actually forced, were forced to rebrand themselves as Bravas. Um, they were so toxic that they had to rename themselves so they didn't have to talk about Adani anymore. Hmm. Um, if we go to the next slide, I wanted to sort of touch on you know, one of the most inspiring elements of the campaign and something I've had the privilege of being involved with is the resistance of the Wangan and Jagalingu people. They are the traditional owners of the land where the, the mine is is being built and since 2012 have said no to the mine several times. Um, they're very concerned about the mine, the country, the damage the mine will do to their country and their song lines and particularly a, a sacred spring system not far from the mine pit. Um, and unfortunately, Adani have responded, you know, in an extremely aggressive manner. They bankrupted an elder. They banned his son, Cody, who's pictured on the left side here from practicing culture on their country. Um, and, yeah, our government is refusing to investigate recent destruction of some important sacred sites on the mining site. But, you know, in an inspirational um turn the you know they are continuing to resist and Cody on the left side in this picture has actually kicked off and uh, occupied an area of the mining lease on the Adani mining lease performing a cultural ceremony called Wandanungu um, and they set an important historic legal precedence where they were testing their rights under the Queensland Human Rights Act um, to perform that cultural ceremony they've been just as of last week, they've been there six months every single day in a boring practising ceremony and they're about one kilometre from the small mine pit that Adani's opened up. So that kind of horizon you can see in the background is the growing overburden from the small mine that Adani has opened up. Um, so, you know, this is huge testament to their ongoing resistance and obviously they're calling for parts of that land to be um, given back to them but also for their cultural sites to be protected um so i guess next slide is sort of like where is the campaign at now um it's been almost a decade of community resistance to the project the good news is that you know broadly our campaign has been hugely successful of all the coal port expansions 
and other proposed coal mines in the Galley Basin, we have stopped them. Um, we, we've stopped those coal port expansions. It's very unlikely now the other coal companies apart from Adani will build their mines, and that's largely because we've managed to delay Adani's own timelines by eight years. Um, so in that time, you know, we've seen it become less and less viable or those companies walk away. Um, the bad news is that, you know, we're up against a dogged, persistent and cashed-up opponent, Guatam Adani, happens to be the richest man in India right now and they effectively could fund what would otherwise have been a very unviable prospect. Um, and last year they completed construction of the railway line um, and our goal and, and started digging their mine and our goal now is to constrain that construction as much as possible and keep them accountable uh, and keep any other coal companies out. Um, so that's kind of where it's at. The next slide I just wanted to touch on, I guess, like some of the key strategies we've been using to, and I'm sure these will seem familiar to you, um, um, but I guess touch on some of the key strategies we felt were important, some of the wins we have had. Um, and, you know, it's been obviously a big diversity of strategy and, and tactics, throwing effectively everything at our disposal to stop the project. In the early days, it was a lot about challenging their legal approvals um, in the middle to late years we've had a big focus on stopping the money so we successfully pushed all four Australian banks away from the project forcing saying they would not getting them to commit that they would not fund this mine and then forced Adani to self-finance um, off the back of that we've also seen a lot of those banks develop coal and climate policies in the process which has been a huge win um, I think one of the more Innovative things we've done is, is parts of our movement have really pressured contractors, so the companies that are employed on the ground to do the work. Um, here, Downer is a mining contractor that effectively project manages a lot of these larger mines, and by forcing them out of the project, Adani have had to use a lot of small, inexperienced subcontractors, which has led to mistakes on the ground, has cost Adani a lot of money. Um, We've also had people on the front lines um, continuing to monitor and expose Adani's breaches um, on site. They've got a terrible environmental track record of um, ignoring environmental conditions. And so we're always, as well as um, having people taking front action on the ground, so stopping Adani where it's possible during that construction phase. So there's been a big range of strategies. Um, I think touching on some of the bigger broader impacts we've had um, if we go to that next slide that's just you know la last year we reached a milestone of forcing a hundred companies um, to pass policies to refuse work on the Adani Carmichael project and that has been effectively a strategy of pushing all our grassroots efforts to one target and t you know taking actions at their offices hammering them in whatever way we can and then shifting to the next one um, and I think we're starting, if we go to the next slide, starting to see, you know, the beginning of the end for coal finance and the Stop Adani campaign has played a part in really helping spearhead a broader shift of, from the finance sector away from coal. So, you know, we saw big players, not just here in Australia, but also in China, Europe and USA rule out the Adani Carmichael mine. Um, and as I said, 
often those big companies, when you're targeting them, they'll say to us, well, we can't possibly rule out this one project. It's commercial and confidence. We couldn't possibly make a policy just about the Adani Carmichael mine. So they've often then had to develop a policy around coal or climate more broadly, um, which is where we've started to see the broader impacts of the campaign across those sectors. So, for example, Westpac Bank, which is a major bank in Australia, um, they didn't just rule out Adani, they brought in a policy to not fund any new coal, thermal coal basins. Um, and I think we can say that was largely off the back of the Stop Adani movement pressure. So, in fact, of the 100 companies that have ruled out Adani, two-thirds of those companies have also got policies in around coal or climate change. I think we're moving into a phase where, you know, a lot of these companies are making commitments and it's our job as, as people-powered movements to keep those accountable to those commitments because they say all the right things, um, but often their policies don't reflect those goals of the Paris agreements. And so we have a huge job on our hands to kind of cut through the greenwash and hold them accountable. Um, so that's kind of touching on the finance. Um, another area, so if you go to the next slide on coal insurance, we've been working with our partners across the globe, particularly in London, is for the last 18 months has to look at the insurance sector. And, you know, every coal mine across the country or across the world needs insurance. You cannot open and operate a mine without it. Um, and so this is part of a new piece of work we've been working on to target, yeah, as with a whole bunch of movement partners to target insurers. Um, and for now or to date, over 40 major insurers have ruled out financing the project. Uh, for a while there, we were focusing on the Lloyds of London, which is a marketplace in the UK that sort of a last resort for fossil fuel companies to go to for insurance. They cobble together a whole bunch of insurance for uninsurable projects. Um, and I'll talk about that win in a second. But I think the broader impact of this work with our movement partners is um, you know, we're starting to see mounting costs and, and um, for those companies to get insurance and increasingly difficult for new coal mines to get insurance as well. Um, that photo is just, ARC was one of the potential insurers for the Adani mine. We had actions at their offices sort of all over the country. So the next slide sort of talks to um, one, yeah, one of the probably the more the biggest wins we've had in the last 18 months is that by pressuring that Lloyds of London marketplace, um, they then developed a world-first climate policy for them to rule out insuring any new coal mines. And significantly, you know, that work at marketplace ensures 40% of the world's fossil fuel projects. So I think this is a really important example of how we can use a toxic project like the Adani campaign or the Adani mine to really spearhead um, and help trigger broader shifts across these insurance and finance sectors. Um, coming close to the end, but I wanted to touch on in the next slide, I guess, some key ingredients to success I've observed across some of that Stop Adani work um, is, yeah, I think, you know, obviously this is a big national campaign. We had a lot of um, groups as a part of that campaign and a high degree of collaboration across those movement partners from, you know, small grassroots groups on the grounds to tourism operators and um yeah, bigger NGOs. So I think an important thing 
has been actually having the resources to coordinate that work, make sure we're on the same page, that we're complementing each other, that we're sharing resources where we can. Um, in terms of the Stop Adani movement, I think we've had a huge amount of success in a directed network. So this is the idea that you have a centralised strategy. So we picked those movement targets that we go over after, whether it was Westpac Bank or Downer, and that we would do it all at once and that grassroots local groups had a decentralised implementation of that strategy. So they had the autonomy to, to do that strategy on the ground, but there was a centralised strategy that had the latest intel about research and policy. Um, I guess the broader thing is thinking about what are the key pillars of support for the project. So when we first looked at this, we felt like um, the finance and particularly insurance was the biggest pillar of support for that project that we could go after. Um, and so thinking about if you're campaigning, you know, putting yourself in the opponent's shoes, what 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 can you take out that will have the biggest impact on the project at this that, that point in time? In the last couple of minutes, I guess I did just want to touch on, I might not be able to touch on all of these things, but um, what about all the other coal mines? Well, if we cut to slide 28, maybe we can share these slides somehow, or, but I guess this points to, you know, the broad range of strategies we're seeing when it comes to all of those other coal mines that we're fighting across the country. Um, and it really is a diverse range of tactics from, you know, building an important story to targeting the finance um, to doing that um, engagement in the approvals process. As someone who's worked with the grassroots movement, we've done much more of that targeting actions on the ground, particularly going after companies. Um, I wanted to touch on, maybe we'll just touch on one win and then skip forward is, you know, in the last couple of years, so that's this on the Rocky Hills slide, Annalise, but we've we've had a, a, a large number of um, big wins that have come after the back of decade-long community fights and we are starting to see the courts finally shift the dial when it comes to recognising the climate and social impacts of coal mines in across the country. Um, if you flip, flip to the next one, that, that's an, another mine that was a 10-year fight led by traditional owners and farmers on the, on the, on the Liverpool Plains in New South Wales. Um, they also started to do things like pushing BlackRock, the world's biggest money manager, to take out their investments in the company and force the government to buy back their licences. Um, I might skip that Baralabar one because we don't have time, but I guess I just wanted to, so if we're on slide 32, you know, think about this opportunity of finance um, because we are... Um, where we're headed next is really to zone in on this big pillar of support for the industry. Like Australian banks continue to fund coal mines despite these commitments. There's huge loopholes in their current policies. Um, and, you know, without concerted community pressure, I don't think these companies are going to um, stop funding these dangerous projects until too late. So that's going to be a huge point of um, our focus in the future. If we go to the the next slide, you know, we've got big opportunities here. We know that only five companies in Australia produce 60% of all our coal, including Glencore, BHP and coal. That's a great point of intervention. We want to think about how we can target those. And on the next slide, we're thinking about, well, you know, it's really only four banks in Australia that are funding all of Australian coal mining. Can we target those banks to get big wins across the sector 
Same with contractors. What are the big points of intervention in our industry that we can target? Um, finally, yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, change is, is coming. Um, the second last slide here, like here in Australia, we know that most Australians think we need to get out of coal as soon as possible. Um, and a like while there are big expansions on the cards, coal is becoming increasingly unprofitable and hard to fund. Um, I think our job now is to keep those companies accountable to not funding those those mines. And we know that, you know, long dedicated community campaigns can win, um, but it takes time. It's taken a decade or more for a lot of these campaigns to finally come to fruition and to finally beat the companies they've been fighting. Um, and finally, I just want to say thank you for listening. Um, I hope it was useful. Would love to connect with anyone if you've got questions or feedback. That's my email. The Stop Adani campaign is there. Standing Our Ground website is the Wangan and Jagalingu Cultural Custodians if you want to support their work resisting and protecting country on the ground. And finally, I did want to just share that last website, great new website where you can look up any of the finance for companies on the global coal exit list. So it's over a 1,000 companies. Might be a useful tool. Um, otherwise, I will leave it there and, and look forward to the, the Q&A. Wonderful. Thank you, Moira, for sharing um, the amazing work that's happening. And it must be, it must feel good to have some success behind, you know, so often activism it's hard to see your success. So it's it's nice to see some of the success here that you're suddenly having. Um, I'll jump right to the queue. Jim McPhail, what next with Adani finally starting up? Yeah, great question. And we've got some grassroots gatherings where we're bringing together the movement to talk about just this in a couple of weeks time. But I think um, really important that we continue to stand with Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians. I guess one of the learnings from me is like, you know, as climate activists, we're very often wanting that the urgency is very pressing for us. We want to stop this now. We need, we know it's a very urgent crisis, but I guess I've learned from working with them that this is a really long struggle for land justice, that it's a 200-year struggle for here in Australia fighting colonialism, and they are in a very long fight. And so I think, first and foremost, continuing to support their work in, you know, resisting Adani and fighting to protect country. Um, I guess more broadly, while we think there are opportunities to constrain Adani, then aren't necessarily, you know, like by keeping them accountable to conditions and things on the ground, they aren't really conducive to building a big people-powered movement, which is the work sort of we've been focusing on. So right now we're thinking about, well, how can we take a lot of the lessons of the Stop Adani campaign, the stuff we've learned around particularly pressuring companies, I would say, to change and, and, and hit some of the bigger coal targets that are driving a lot of the coal expansions in Australia and across the world, you know, money managers like BlackRock that still invest $85 billion in coal globally despite saying they're, you know, climate leaders. So I think there's lots of work to do and that's some of the work we want to do is how do we apply those lessons to the broader the broader coal industry? Next question comes from Leona Jacobs. How does your government square the abundant use of water by coal mining with the needs of the arid lands of Australia? What arguments do they use to justify this? 
Yeah. <laughs> I wish I knew the answer to this one. Um, and, yeah, it is it is always surprising to me that the the agricultural industry doesn't have the lobbying power that the mining industry does here, right, because it's not, it's not just for the environment we need that water but a lot of landholders that farm that land need the water and they're often out-competed. Um, yeah, so I don't know where that amount of power for the mining industry has and the stranglehold they have on our government and it, 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 it does surprise me how little the agricultural industry sort of fights back against that stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I think there's a big narrative here of the mining industry overinflating their importance um, in terms of like the reality is this, the number of jobs in the mining industry here is actually very small. It's less than the number of people that work at Woolworths, our major, you know, supermarket or but they're very good at telling a story about how um, our economy will fall apart if um, if the mines close. I'm sure that's a familiar one, but they're very good at telling that narrative that, you know, the royalties we get from these mines, the jobs they provide are the single backbone to Australia's economy. Um, and it's a very powerful and effective narrative they've been running for a long time. So it's sort of like everything else is out the window, you know, if it's biodiversity, if it's water, if it's First Nations rights, if it's climate. Mm. Knut Peterson, great to hear from an Aussie. Aside from people caring about our environment and climate change, particularly ranchers have played a major role here in Alberta, stopping coal mining here so far. Um, your comments, please. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing to see. I've seen some of that stuff from afar. Um, one of my first roles on this campaign was working with some landholders along the railway line um, from the coast, well, the proposed railway line from the coast into the mine um, and, you know, whether we could get them collaborating um, to oppose that railway line. And some of the challenges were, you know, across the Adani line that was 300 kilometres long, there was only 16 landholders. That gives you a sense of how big the properties are out there in central Queensland. They very rarely talk to each other. Um, and so, and Adani had got in so early that they'd often had put in confidentiality agreements in place for those landholders. So they couldn't speak to each other about the, the agreements they were negotiating with Adani. Um, and a lot of those landholders effectively felt like they had a gun to their head. They could either negotiate with Adani, the company, or they would have their property compulsorily acquired um, by the state government and effectively they had no choice. So even if they opposed the railway line, which some of them did, less for coal reasons, more for the fact that it was disrupting a, a fragile floodplain because they built the railway line through a floodplain, um, but they had no they had no out, they had no choice. They either negotiate with the downy, get some compensation or they get their um, land compulsory acquired by the state government. Um, so, yeah, big challenges here in having landholders having the support to stand up to mining companies. Our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. A majority of protest in Alberta is the threat to our mountain, east slopes, wildlands. 
Are there similar areas in Australia? Mm, that are like big um, natural areas that are under threat. Could you clarify that, that Ian? I'm I'm assuming so. I think it. Yeah, it is around. Like in, for Alberta, it's around the threat of the mountain east slopes, the wildlands there. But are there similar sort of movement around the protection of the land that that is mm. wilderness land there in yeah. Australia? I think um, one of the early things we did was obviously focus on. <laughs> the thing that most people identified with, which was the Great Barrier Reef. So when there was plans, and so early days we were really focusing on that port expansion and the impacts it was going to have um, and, like, the industrialization of the reef that was going to happen. So I guess in a way that was our biggest landscape, iconic landscape that was under threat. Um, the actual land in, in, in like, what's the word? <laughs> Inland Queensland, I guess, is less iconic. Like, it is really beautiful, and it's especially after rain, there's a, a lot of um, diverse and threatened ecosystems. But that was a challenge that when we actually stopped the, um, we effectively stopped the coal ports, a lot of that reef framing fell away, and we had to like refocus the focus on the climate and stopping the mine. Um, and we didn't have like an iconic beautiful ecosystem that we could point to that was going to be destroyed because it's broadly like pretty scrubby I guess you could say uh, you know very dry um even though I think it's beautiful you know it's not traditionally beautiful um so that was another challenge for the campaign as well Leona Jacobs how did you make this a national movement of coal coal rate large versus so, sorry, I'll start again. How did you make this a national movement of coal writ large versus a regional one of specific mines? Mm. Yeah, great question. Um, I think we were, we were lucky that the, the scale of it, like it was so... You know, we weren't just talking, and there are a lot of mines that are much smaller and that maybe this strategy wouldn't work. Um, but the sheer scale of the expansions they were planning was so big, you know, the fact that it would dwarf Australia's emissions nationally um, every year from the Galley Basin, the fact that it was going through the Great Barrier Reef, one of the biggest precious national icons, um, helped us tell a story that this was a big you know, a big national threat and that we needed to kind of band together to fight this threat. Um, and so I think we did, you know, tell, be able to, and by the point that all the other companies had ruled out and we were down to Adani um, and we became the Stop Adani campaign, it was a very powerful, you know, people love a good villain. You know, it was going after one villain. And I think there's really interesting reflections because we've certainly had feedback that, like, Stop Adani is a negative campaign. It's, it's you know, it doesn't talk to the solutions. It doesn't talk to the transitions for coal communities and definitely learned hard lessons from from that mm. and keen to hear how you're managing those tensions too. Mm. But it's really hard to go past, like, just front and centering the enemy and, um, you know, for in terms of purely motivating your base of people against that. And so... 
when we launched the Stobadani movement, it was those big town hall. We basically said, like, we actually thought we'd won the campaign. This is a few years ago. We thought we'd won the campaign. We thought there was no way they could build this thing. The coal price was low. That a few different things happened. The government stepped in to give them some money. The coal price went up again and all of a sudden it was back on and we actually had to make a deliberate decision to come back in kickstart the campaign again and we said you know well how do we make this the biggest national movement and that's where the idea of the roadshow came off which is just like you know we can't it's also a challenge hardly anyone lives near the mine right like we can't we can't have there's like one or two properties surrounding the mine so this was going to have to be a national movement driven by people largely in cities and that's come with its challenges because we don't i would say we don't have a strong community element to that resistance like some of those other projects have had and that's that's definitely been a challenge as well. But, yeah, I think that tension for all campaigns around like are you telling this positive story about what you want to protect, like whether it's the wildlands versus going after the villain because it's a, motive, a powerful motivator for action is actually really challenging. And I would say we, we did both. We had fight for the reef at the start of the campaign, which was about protecting the reef. And then we switched to stop Adani. Um, once we'd won the port, we'd stop the port expansion. So, yeah, keen to hear how other people are managing those tensions in campaigning, I guess. For sure. Um, our next question comes from Sybil Mansmith. Have some of the coal companies tried to influence the Aboriginal communities to bring them, to, to, to bring them over to their side? And if yes, how did they do this? Yeah, that's a really um, long, sad story, it feels like. Mm. Like the, the – and the Wanganajangalungu website has a, a long history of this and, you know, I don't understand all elements of it, um, but effectively they held you know here in australia you have to mining companies have to form an indigenous land use agreement with the traditional owners in order as one of their approvals to get their mine to go ahead um and our understanding is that adani effectively held a sham meeting so they bust in w and j traditional wangan and jangalingu traditional owners to vote on this meeting but they actually physically kept out some of the most important spokespeople of that meeting. Um, and so Adani have been, you know, they paid people who didn't really know much about the project who were maybe um, taken by some of the compensation they might get and signed off on it. Um, but it wasn't a true representative consultation. Um, and so, you know, the Wangan and Jangaling Family Council, who are the true representatives and spokespeople, have been for a long time trying to undo a narrative that, that Adani effectively had had consultation. They had an Iliwa, a land use agreement. Um, so, yeah, those, those, those um, and I think that's a strategy the mining industry uses here is they divide families, Aboriginal families, by offering compensation and they force them to choose a side um, and they don't necessarily, they're not honest about the impacts and the, and the true compensation they'll get from those those projects either um yeah it's, it's a complicated story mm -hmm. but certainly a lot of dirty tactics on their part mm -hmm. mark goodall could you say a little something about how you targeted banks 
via picketing in front of them and using coal or black babies, that's in quotation marks, I, <laughs> I believe it was. Oh, uh, yeah, to bring a photo up about that. There's some, I think, you guys have Extinction Rebellion in Canada? They there? Yeah, some of the Extinction Rebellion crew who've been part of the Stop Adani campaign here, you know, they definitely go for that more confronting visual imagery. Uh, and so they had some um, kids, like toy, like dolls, I guess, that were like kids piled with coal over them. So, and then put them out the front of these banks. So, you know, it's quite confronting when you're walking down the street and you see a kid buried in coal. Um, but that was one, I guess, visually, visual tactic. Um, there was a lot of tactics when it came to the banks um, that sort of escalated over time. So, you know, it started with emails, then escalate to phone calls. And then, you know, a lot of groups took bolder action, like sitting in, in it there in their branches. Um, doing queue-ins where they wait to open a bank account and then close it again straight away because they've had a conversation about how they're involved in investing in Adani or coal or whatever. So there's a lot of creative tactics that came out in that bank's campaign and I think one of the reasons we're interested in focusing on that is like, you know, it, well, here I don't know about there but a lot of those major banks have branches everywhere, right? So we had people in towns you know it wasn't just major cities it was in the smallest regional town that a, a few people could go and take action be part of a big national movement um and the bank is like what they're protesting in albury wodonga you know tiny towns not just like big cities really shows that you've got a big movement of people that are concerned about this and there's going to be real disruptions to their business unless they do the right the right thing right um, our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. A major problem in Alberta is selenium pollution to our waterways, and in particular, air pollution. Is it similar there? Yeah, is there big impacts to air pollution? Yeah. And, and selenium in the water, the, mm. the wastewater? Yeah. I think you guys do a well, I've spent a bit of time in the Appalachian Mountains doing some stuff with some groups there on coal. seems like they were way ahead of us in terms of monitoring um, for heavy elements in water and, and using that as a way to kind of hold those companies account and launch legal strategies to, you know, um, stop pollution in waterways. I, I, don't, I don't think we probably use that to our fullest extent. I'm not sure about selenium's specifically um in terms of air pollution yeah it's an interesting one like that stat i was surprised at that stat around three thousand people that are you know prematurely die because of coal pollution basically pollution from mining and burning of coal including in coal power stations um and it, there are some groups here that are start have been using that as strategies in particular to help hasten the closure of our coal plants, less the mines, because they're more remote, but often the plants are a bit closer to human residents. I mean, yeah, one of the challenges, you know, we did start to talk about air pollution as part of the Galilee Basin campaign, but one of the challenges is people are so far from those coal trains, so far from the mine, that there wasn't enough community concern about that as a specific impact. But I think certainly where you've got 
high density of people next to the polluting infrastructure, it started to come in. And I think groups like um, there's some groups like Environmental Justice Australia, Climate and Health Alliance here that are starting to use that to pressure for, you know, better conditions on coal plants to try and, um, you know, like hasten the closure of those coal plants effectively. Mm. And next question comes from Beth Mundell. What advice do you have for us in Alberta where Australian mining companies are trying to do the same here they did in Oz? <laughs> yeah, have you guys have got Gina Reinhardt, do you? Uh, a few others I was speaking to, you. yeah. Um, great question. Um, I mean, I guess, yeah. God, it's tough, isn't it? I mean, I think um, one of those, one of the ways to cut it is to, you know, think about are you going after the company or are you going after the pillars of support for that company? So are you going after, do you have enough information about who's backing, like what's making that project possible? Um, and I think at least from a, you know, I'm not a legal expert, I don't do a lot of the research, so I'm more on the kind of grassroots power building side of things and I think one of the things we've learned is that you know even though we created a big movement we still had to be really focused and we could only really pressure one target at a time like if we were going after a bank we had to make sure all of our resources were going towards targeting that bank at that time and until we could which then did create domino effects you know if one bank moves it's more likely that another bank will then bring in a policy um I think that was one of our key learnings is you do have to be like incredibly focused. Like we are up against powerful enemies um, and for us to have enough power, yeah, targeting until you win and then moving on, um, yeah, was was useful for us in terms of the finance campaign. Um, yeah, happy to keep chatting. I mean, yeah, I guess it's really dependent on the stage that those minds are in too, right? Like are they in that? stage where you don't have enough community awareness like there was literally a very big stage of just building awareness about the fact this project was happening about the impacts of the project to get it to a point where it was in people's consciousness and they knew about it and they could talk about it um as well hmm. our next question um leona jacobs just has a comment re-narratives we are hearing the same narratives here where Australian coal companies are trying to root in our eastern slopes, the water tower for the Canadian prairies, right? So that's just a comment. Next question comes from Laurie Schultz. What countries in Australia, what countries is Australia coal exporting to? Do citizens of those countries push back to importing coal based on climate change? Mm, yeah, great question. Um, largely we export to uh, Asia, so I think Japan, Korea, um, are the, uh, China, China are the top top ones. Um, and, yeah, there has been an inspiring sort of Japan beyond coal movement that is starting to look at that. And obviously there were some moves with China starting to look at banning imports of coal that were going to be possibly useful um so yeah i think it's a great point it's like and and 
I don't do much of this work, but some of the people I work with have started to make connections with those groups to, you know, just connect and see if we can support each other in some way. Um, certainly, yeah, if we can constrain um, demand, then that's a, a big way to, to, to solving the problem we have, yeah. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Although any reason to fight coal mining is arguably good, the fight here in Alberta in many cases probably is more about not in my backyard, NIMBY because the potential of water slash air pollution. Mm. Yeah, you know, and um, that can be really powerful <laughs> motivator, you know, like, I would say you don't have to necessarily create this big national campaign if that's not where you're at. And a lot of those wins that I shared at the end and that we had to kind of skip through that I haven't been part of but other communities, particularly a group here called Lock the Gate Alliance, supports communities to do just that, to fight those mines in their backyard and to give them the resources they need to do that. And I think... Um, it's taken a huge toll on those communities, you know, often year-long court battles, big community campaigns, a lot of energy. And so obviously it's great to where you can draw on the resources of bigger NGOs and groups that can, can provide national support. But I also think it's one of the most powerful things you've got, right, because it's people on the ground resisting, saying no, um, constant thorn in the side of those companies, constant intel into what they're doing, like, those kinds of campaigns have had, you know, big wins here, like particularly around the gas movement in Australia where there's, you know, on-ground blockades, community resistance from the get-go. Um, so hopefully you've got, you know, enough resources within your community that that's a really strong, a strong campaign in, in itself. Um. Knut's second part to that question. Sorry, there was a second part. I it, it skips down the thread a bit, so I missed it. Sorry, Knut. Um, second part to that question was many people in Lethbridge, for example, work in the coal mines a few miles away across the mountains in British Columbia. So, mm. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's the thing we haven't done very well. You know, like I would say largely our national movement was made up of it was much more probably diverse at the start, but in the last few years has much more been made up of city people concerned about climate change. And that's been another big critique of the campaign is that we have not engaged well enough the communities and the workers that are impacted um, because effectively, you know, their power and their vested interests and the genuine legitimate concerns they have um, have been a big reason why we haven't you know, moved out of coal quicker than we than we otherwise would have. So, yeah, it's another big question, hey, for our campaigns is like, do we have the capacity to engage those people? Who's best place to do that work, hmm. um, that transition work? Okay, our next question comes from Leona Jacobs. Um, a counter-argument for mining is the importance of these mining projects to local to the, local to the mine economy. How was that addressed in Australia? Mm. Can you say that one just one more time? Yeah, you bet. A counter-argument for mining 
Mm. is the importance of these Look. mining projects to local to the mine economy. Local economies, yeah. Mm, how do we counter that? Yeah. Um, we've got a group here called the Australia Institute that do a lot of great research around, like, what are the real impacts of mining? Um, and, you know, for example, they showed that a lot of the impacts that the mining industry said they had through the mining boom here um, you know, weren't didn't didn't meet up to the actual numbers. So, for example, they would say that like mining is great for regional jobs and regional economies, and the Australia Institute showed that actually overall there was negative impacts on employment because the mining industry was just taking skilled workers from manufacturing or agriculture, giving them heaps of money, paying them heaps of money, and sucking them from other places that they were needed. So it wasn't like the mining industry was out there employing people that didn't have jobs they were effectively creating a skill shortage they didn't do the training of those workers and they sucked it out from other industries that needed them so that's one strategy that's been done here is to try and tell the true story of those impacts but i'd say it's in incredibly difficult and overall we're we're failing to tell that that real story um yeah our last question for today comes from Ian Hurdle, Premier of Alberta, very on board for coal mining in spite of a majority of the population against. Is, is it the same for a head of Queensland government? Yeah, um, that's right. I mean, the Queensland government is trying to, you know, Queensland's one of the sunniest places in the world, right? We should be, like, transitioning to renewables yesterday. And I think one thing they're trying to do now is do both. They're trying to say, we can expand into renewables, but we can also build more coal mines and we can still meet our climate targets. And so, um, yes, our Premier of Queensland is very, very supportive of all new coal projects going ahead. She's also happy to talk about the need for climate change and all the good work they're doing in renewables. And I think it's our job as a movement to say, well, actually, you know, physics and science means you can't do that and still meet your climate targets. Um, and that was one of the things we tried to do through that campaign. And we did force them to stop a billion-dollar loan to Adani, which was a huge political win as part of the campaign. They were going to hand out a billion dollars of taxpayer money to the to the company and we stopped that loan um, by purely just saying this is a bad use of taxpayer money, um, you know. Um, but, yes, we have a, there's full, full support for the mining industry, I'd say, particularly in Queensland where that narrative of the, the backbone, the mining backbone of our economy is particularly strong. Mm. Mm. Okay, and Ian, Ian Hurdle also has a comment just saying that there's a paper by Hendrix on air pollution in Oz. So, the name is Hendrix. Um, many thanks um, for your time and for your presentation. Really fascinating to hear what's happening in Australia. Um, before we end the session, do you have a take-home message for us, please? 
Um, I would say, you know, we are up against a really, for those who are part of coal campaigns, we're up against a really powerful industry, but we are turning the tide. And, you know, a lot of people will tell you you're not having a difference. The, the, our opponents, the Murdoch press, our climate deniers will say, oh, you're not having an impact. That's because they don't want you to know that. And I think we've shown, you know, through this campaign and others that that's the only thing that's going to slow down and eventually end this industry is a lot of us holding those companies to account and resisting in whatever way we can. So, yeah, big solidarity to all of you fighting coal projects across Alberta. Um, yeah, we're with you and obviously it's a big global effort we're, we're in at the moment. Well, on behalf of SACPA, thank you very much for your time. There's many thank yous in the queue. Leona Jankops, thank you so much for sharing. Jim McPhail, Fair Duncan, Mora, and then uh, Sybil Mensman, thank you for your presentation. And Ian Hurdle and Knut Peterson, the, the list goes on of thank yous. And, thank you and, very much. Yeah. And for our listeners, um, we won't have a session this Thursday. But we will next week, Thursday, at our usual time at 12, 12 noon uh, Mountain Standard Time with Ibrahim Toure. Is storytelling a means to reveal racism in the daily experience of people of color? And I hope you'll join us for that. And um, with that, we'll wish you all a good night.